This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Any decent chef can tell you that cooking is both an art and a science. And when we think about that science part, we often think in terms of physics and chemistry. Underlying both of those sciences, though, is pure mathematics. So when Holla Nelson and John Webb wanted to know how to cook the perfect steak, they applied a nearly 80-year-old mathematical model to the question, and they came up with some fascinating conclusions about how fluid and heat move through meat as it cooks. Holla Nelson is an associate professor of applied mathematics at James Madison University, where she focuses her research on material science, inverse problems, and partial differential equations. Holla, welcome. Hi, Matthew. How are you? I'm so good. Thank you for joining us. And John Webb is an associate professor of pure mathematics at James Madison University and a number theorist who studies classical modular forms and their applications. John, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Matthew. It's a pleasure to be here. Mathematical models are like bridges. They, they carry us from one place to another. To build a model like building a bridge, it's helpful to know where we intend to go. So before we get to the math around this really fascinating experiment that you and your students did, I wanted to talk about how you think about where you're going. How do you think about steak? And let's start with Hollow. What should the experience of eating a good steak be like? It should be incredibly juicy, flavorful, correct temperature, not too hot, not too cold. But I never cook steak just to get that out of the way right away. I never cook it myself. I have my husband cook the steak. When you came home with this model, did you put it in front of your husband and say like, okay, honey, this is the way it's supposed to be done? Or do you still just trust him to get it right? I did say that. And I still said, it's you're still going to make it because I never tried it the way we did it. I never put it in an oven. I never did that. John, I know the best steak I ever had. I remember it viscerally. It was a grass-fed, dry-aged ribeye from the butcher just around the corner from our home. It was sous vide prepped and grill finished. How about you? Is there a steak eating experience that stands out in your mind? Well, so I, I have to say, right after we finished, I immediately went out and bought a sous vide machine. And that's how I've been cooking my steak since. It's sort of life-changing, isn't it, when you do the sous vide thing for the first time? Oh, it feels like cheating. <laughs> <laughs> it, does, it really does. I felt guilty the first time I did it, but not guilty enough that I will ever cook a steak in another way, I think. Yes, exactly. John, you enjoy cooking, right? I do. Now at home, I'm cooking, you know, probably about 15 meals a week for everyone. And Hala, you said that your husband preps the steaks for you, but do you enjoy cooking in other ways? I am the main cook in our family. It's only the steak that I do not cook, and I will never cook. Why is that? What, what is it about the steak that makes you standoffish, especially given that you just wrote a paper in a peer-reviewed journal about cooking the perfect steak? Yeah, it is because of that. It's because it's like, it's almost too accurate. And I, my cooking style is not accurate at all. I just do it by intuition. And I feel steak, you can get it wrong so fast, completely mess it up, dry it out, not do the right thing. And in other foods, which I always cook, 
unlike John, I cook so many meals a week. It's it's very different. It's not exact science. So let's get at this study, which is a very exacting science. And I'm wondering where it came from. Were you looking for an application with which you could put some macro molecular modeling to use? Or were you curious about cooking and decided to see if math could help make the experience better? Yeah, it came from, I was in my kitchen and I think I was about to cook, I think a steak or it might have been a pork chop or something like that. And, you know, there's so many different ways that people recommend cooking them, especially I was going to cook it on a cast iron pan. But even then, there's the reverse sear, there's the flip constantly, there's the butter basting. And it sort of just popped in my head, you know, is there a way to figure out what this is actually doing to the meat? And so then I thought about it. and I was like, well, I probably know some mathematicians in my department that could help me do this. And so was Hala your first call? Yeah, we had worked together on uh, some other projects, particularly we had worked with some students on crystal growing. And so we worked pretty well together on that. Um, We had talked about doing a research for undergraduates project over the summer. And I asked her what her idea for it was, and and she had a great idea. And then I said, well, what if we did steak cooking instead? (laughs) And Hala, what did you think when John goes, hey, let's do the math of steak? Yeah. Did it sound crazy or did it sound brilliant? I was like, it is complicated. It will be complicated because it's a biological system. And I I work in materials and I know that how many parameters can go into that. So I was like, wow, this is going to be really complicated, but it will answer a lot of questions. I thought it was a crazy idea, really. And it was crazier to think that we were going to do it with undergraduate students, not graduate students, students who's never been exposed to modeling before or anything like it. So we were crazy and we did it. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about the math here. Numbers are endlessly fascinating things. And the science of numbers is exploding in this new world that we live in, in which computers are offering us like this ability to move through data at the speed of light. But when you guys wanted to answer this question, this question of how to cook a better steak, you decided to use a theory, the the Flory-Rainer equation, that's almost 80 years old. Talk about this equation and what makes it a good vehicle for solving the question you were asking. So uh, what happened is we were browsing the literature and it has been modeled before or attempted. Most of the literature on meat cooking was experimental. It wasn't mathematical. Very few was mathematical. So the one or two that we found was mathematical built onto this theory. So it wasn't really our idea to start that way. So it was somebody else's idea, but they had done it in one dimension. They linearized the theory. They didn't use a full equation. So we kind of built on that, and that's how research is usually done. And then the good thing about what we used is we didn't have to go like deep into the biology of what's going on. We kind of thought about it as a polymer, like a bunch of proteins, uh, protein matrix mixed with fluid. And that's where it all started, like this mixing idea of the protein matrix with the fluid. And that sounded like a really good way to overcome all the biological things that could go on when you're actually 
cooking something. So it was like the bridge to physics uh, instead of to biology, which is more complicated. And this equation was built to answer questions like what happens when we are bringing together fluids and, and polymers, right? I mean, that, that yeah. would, 80 exactly. years ago, they came up with this. What is it like when you're looking for a model, when you're looking for an equation that will help you solve a question and you come up with something that is, I mean, it's almost ancient in mathematical terms, but it's still pure and it's still useful. Relevant, yes. And and that's the amazing thing about math is it, it kind of strips down all the applications and it's just purely standing there as this is like the correct way to view things. Like, it's like, you know, the prime numbers, these are the numbers standing between among the, all the numbers, but this is what these other numbers are made up of. It really strips down any application, uh, down to its standing structure, like what's making the structure stand. It's these like things. And math is always like that. It goes all the way down. And the nice thing about it is there are so many applications that can be applied to the same theory. The same theory can answer so many questions and different theory answers different questions. And if two different theories answer the same question, then they somehow could be linked. And that's another mathematical question is exploring the link. So this very old, like you say, it's old. <laughs> Eight years in math is not so old, but if this old theory answered a question like this, it's answering a bunch of different questions at the same time that have nothing to do with meat. Yeah, math is very constructive. You know, you're always building up from what's been done before. You know, it's not like in, you know, sort of chemistry physics where you disprove a theory and then that theory is tossed away. Actually, doing research, uh, talking to students, they get intimidated by research in math because they feel like so many things have already been proved. How are you ever going to find something new to prove? And really, that's completely the wrong way to think about it. Um, it's more like when you prove a theorem, you've really opened up three new doors to go through. It's got to be so much fun when you find something that applies, when you're looking through the literature and you come up with a hypothesis, right? This theory is going to work for this question. And then you apply it to the question and you add to that groundwork of mathematical knowledge that says that that original equation has these amazing applicabilities, right? Yeah, and you can always improve the theory. You can always add on it. You can always prove something in it or disprove something in it. It's always like a building. And you added to this by applying it to cooking steak. One of the important aspects to the model that you built is shrinkage, which every home chef understands is part of what happens to meat when it cooks. But I don't think it's really something that a lot of people think about in terms of what that means at a macro molecular level. Why was shrinkage important to factor into your model and how did it complicate things for you? It all informs each other, right? It is um, when you track uh, cooking meat, you want to see what's going on with the fluid inside the steak. And that is moving because the temperature changes and then the pressure gradient builds up and that induces fluid movement and fluids get pushed out and that again changes the temperature. So things are changing all at the same time and you need to track that. So if you actually do not model shrinkage into 
the process, which is exactly what happens in real life, is you don't get the right temperature. You can't reproduce exactly what's going on. You have to track it all at the same time. It's all happening at the same time. It's all informing each other. So if you don't really model shrinkage into it, then you're not predicting the correct temperature, the correct moisture, the content. You'll really become off of what's going on in real life. Yeah, the distance between you know, the protein cells is a really important variable in getting to understand this well. And so, I mean, it's it's a completely reasonable thing to do, the first people going through and, and making a model for this, that shrinkage is hard. It's hard to get an idea on how to handle it. And so you just say, I'm going to put that aside for now. And that's mm-hmm. that's essentially a lot of what a mathematical model is, is you're kind of picking what are the things that are important that you're going to keep in, and what are the things that you think are less important that you're going to put out. Yeah, in a math model, sometimes you put things on the side because you want to understand other mechanisms. Even if the model doesn't predict exactly what's going on, you still understand the effect of these particular things that you thought you modeled and you put into your model. And then what you left out, it could be super important or not, but that's not what your model predicts. You worked with Shintaro, and and your in fact your your entire student team was undergraduates. Yes. What do you think that these beginning researchers gained from being able to explore math in this very applied way? A lot of things. It taught them how to, first of all, like form the question in the right way. There's a question that a chef might ask, what's the perfect way to cook a steak? And then a researcher and scientist would take it and try to like know exactly what will go on the process, uh, what happens physically, and then how to formulate that into equations and what these equations contain, what they might answer. So they got to see a lot of that. They got to browse through the available literature, see what's already done, what needs to be added, see if what's done is enough, then we have to change the question. And they, of course, they learned how to model, they learned math, they learned how you sometimes answer the wrong questions, you have to like fix it back and forth, how to talk to other researchers, how to work in collaboration. There's a ton of experience that they gained from this project. Yeah, so this this was a eight-week project funded by the NSF, hosted at, at James Madison University in Virginia that the students applied for. And so to some degree that, you know, the students self-selected because they applied to be to be part of the project. You know, so this was done on campus, sort of an intense eight weeks, you know, the six of us together sitting in a room hashing this out. And at the beginning, we had never met the students beforehand. And so, you know, we're trying to work on this project at the same time that we're trying to get to know each other. We're trying to, you know, we have to sort of figure out what the students know. Um, a lot of the times the students knew the physics much better than I did. And so I would be the one sitting and listening to them teach me the physics. And then I would look at it and I would give them my perspective on their ideas as a mathematician. I think that in such a focused, intensive environment, this is something that we can't really do during a regular school year because if we have students, you know, if we're doing this during a fall term or a spring term, students have five other classes plus clubs and activities. It's just impossible to be able to devote this much attention to one problem. 
John, you guys built a model that allowed you to watch a video of a virtual steak cooking. Yeah. And as a mathematician, I know the model was exciting for you, but I'm wondering as a cook, as someone who loves the process of taking a piece of meat and turning it into something that is delectable, was there something disjointed about seeing a steak come into existence and move through the process of being cooked in this virtual space with you know, like without the smells that come from the volatile <laughs> molecules evaporating into the air and, and the radiated heat of the oven and all of that. Like, was there something strange about that also? I thought it was really magical. I mean, I, I remember the first day that we really got the the model up and running well. And to go through and to see how it was changing shape. And it reminded me of what I see when I cook a steak on, say, a cast iron pan. If you took a cross section, it's pretty much a perfect rectangle. You put it down on a hot pan, the first side sears really well, mm. evenly all the way across. And this is before there's been any change in shape. And then, but while that's happening, then you start having all of these processes going through. You have this fluid flow, you have some water coming out, you have some water. One of the most interesting things I think about the model, everyone knows that when you cook a steak, you see water, you see fluid blood coming off the sides. It actually pushes inside just as much as it, as it goes out. And so yeah. the inside almost puffs up, almost like a balloon yeah. for a little while. And uh-huh. so then when you flip the steak, now the middle of it is actually larger than, the, than what it is on the sides. And so that second side, when you cook it, it doesn't brown as evenly. You have a lot more browning in the middle and then you have at the edges because the shape has deformed. Oh, and so swelling. when I... Yeah, so when I saw the video showing the steak swelling in the middle as it's heating up, I was like, wow, that's exactly what I see. It's amazing. It was amazing. It's like the happiest moment of a modeler's um, (laughs) life is when they see the the model doing exactly what they usually observe in in real life. Because like you said, everything is virtual. There's not a real thing cooking here but you managed to really model it and capture the transformation and and that's amazing and i think there's some important context here because when you're a modeler when you try to take something that exists in the chaotic dynamic environment of the world and reduce it to numbers and to algorithms it's very very easy to get it wrong modeling is a life of frustration usually right Exactly. It either works or it doesn't. Like when we really put all the equations together, and I don't know if you looked at the paper, it was a ton of things and parameters. And we were grabbing parameters from here and there trying to like make it really physically realistic. And it it was amazing to see it just come through. It was like, I was like, wow, this this did work. Yeah, we we started off... You know, really trying to go back to, you know, first principle physics and building it just from the equations coming out of it. And there really, I mean, while there was lots of parameters, there was very little that we really had control over. Choice over, nothing. Yeah, yeah, to, to adjust. And so very much it's an act of faith. Sometimes in, in mathematical models, people have some leeway. So they can tweak some parameters to fit the observed data. 
and we did not have that leeway usual and that's usually questionable when people do that it's not a good thing i mean if you like tweak your parameters to fit the sometimes you can do that sometimes you can't and we couldn't because if we did it it meant that our model was wrong and so it was amazing to like not have to tweak anything everything was exactly we got it from the physics it was correct and and then our model worked and we didn't have to tweak anything because we again you couldn't just come up with a theoretical stake your model ends up concluding that an a constant oven temperature of 437 degrees coupled with an initial steak temperature of 44.6.6. I love that. 44.6 degrees. This, this is the ideal starting point for cooking. Um, and then the X factor of steak size determines cooking time to get you to 145 degrees, which is generally considered a medium rare steak. Okay, but that's what the computer said. But you... I mean, the proof was in the pudding or the proof was in the steak, I guess, in this case. I assume you've now tested the math in the kitchen and... Our ovens are not nearly as, as accurate as, as the oven in the computer. Um, I mean, I think, you know, so a lot of those conditions, they were set by, you know, we had to test it against something. And so we were able to find some, you know, some actual physical tests in the literature. And so a lot of those conditions were based on what those physical researchers came up with. So we had to mathematically recreate that uh, because that was the only way to be able to compare numerical data from the model to experimental data from the lab and validate the model. So can I take this model now and let's say, let's say I say, you know what, like, that's great that we're trying to get to 145 degrees because I like a a medium rare steak. But what if I like a rare steak? I want to get it to 132 degrees. That's my ideal outcome. Can we play with the model to create? Yeah. That's the nice thing about the model is it doesn't really matter how you start or how you even cook it because all of that are just conditions that we can change easily in the model. So this model, what this does for you is give me the way you want to cook it and give me the temperatures and the outside temperature and then I'm going to track everything for you after you give me how you want to cook it and what you're starting with. We track everything that we need to determine a good steak. (laughs) What are you learning from this experience about what things make math feel interesting and relevant to a wide variety of people? Yeah, I think... You know, if you go back and you look at, at, you know, the history of mathematicians, a lot of the great mathematicians, they had these very highfalutin, very still technical now papers to go back and look through. But at the same time, they would go back and they would play around with these more kind of recreational mathematics. You know, I'm thinking about Gauss with his Bridges of Cronenberg, which really, to some degree, started topology and some ideas in graph theory coming out of it. And so there is a lot of really interesting mathematics that can come from what seem to be these very common everyday problems. And so I think, you know, in terms of my job as a mathematician, it's not just to go through and do the very hard technical mathematics. It's also to go through and look at questions that interest, you know, people in general. 
Yeah, for me, I did not know it was going to get that publicity. I actually, it's definitely not my most important work <laughs> I've ever done. <laughs> but it's like John said, it does answer a question that people seem to think about in their everyday life. And since people are usually trust math, even if they say they don't understand it, if you say, oh, it's mathematically correct, then it is correct. So I think people are like, oh, like did math answer a question that I was thinking about all this time? <laughs> so so that's why it got it, it, people like paid attention to it. It's because of something they cared about. And I do think the sciences have really diverged from each other for the longest time. But now, if you notice at all the initiatives where all the money is going, it's always going for initiatives that's trying to converge the sciences back together to make things that are interdisciplinary and things that answer questions on many levels. Paula Nelson and John Webb's recent paper on a mathematical model for meat cooking was published in the European Physics Journal Plus. Paula Nelson, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you, Matthew. It was so much fun. And John Webb, thank you. Thank you, Matthew. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Friday at 2 p.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot, and I'm Matthew LaFont. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.